Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Happy Valentine's Day, podcast listeners. We got Jeff Rimsberg in the studio for a co-host. Jeff, Jeff, welcome. What's happening? Jeff, that's a new uh, version. I'm in somewhat of a foul mood. You seem to be in a pretty good mood. A, a reader sent in a bottle of tequila. A reader. I keep saying reader because I've been blogging for 10 years. So I keep saying reader. A listener sent us a bottle of good tequila. So Jeff's happy. He loves tequila. So you podcast listeners, keep keep sending Jeff booze. He'll he'll keep this podcast rolling. Yeah, the, ru- the rule is we have to drink it in the office, though. So Okay. Well, the what was it? Was it Añejo? Blanco? It's, uh, it was in Yeho, I believe. One Blanco. And you know what the third one is? Resposado. Right Reposado. Reposado. <laughs> <laughs> it's a desperado is what it is. Uh, I'm in a foul mood because we've been through a lot of audits recently, and I'm now doing GIPS auditing, and it's just sort of mindless, terrible, miserable. But podcast has taken us away from that. We've had some good ones lately. The Ed Thorpe and John Bollinger's, I thought, went great, really um, interesting guys, old school market historians. Uh, you could listen to those and probably find 10 new things each time you listen to them. So we thought we'd break it up, do a Q&A episode. You guys remember to keep sending us questions. We've been having a lot of great ones. Uh, so we'll read them on air live. And Jeff, looks like you got a whole stack. So why don't we jump right in? Yeah, we got some great ones. So we'll just uh, dive in, see how far we can get. And it's feedback at com. All right, number one, one that I thought was pretty insightful here. Based on your white papers, blog, and podcasts, you've indicated that trend following is not designed to increase returns, but rather to limit and protect your portfolio from massive drawdowns that buy and hold experiences. If this is the case, how does an increase in allocation toward trend following in the six Trinity portfolios correlate to more aggressive return-seeking portfolio? It would seem that if trend following is designed to reduce drawdowns rather than increase returns, an increase in trend following allocation would be present in Trinity 1 versus Trinity 6. I'd love your input. Well, you know, I mean, say, saying trend following alone is, we often say it's it's like saying dog, where, you know, a Datsun looks different than a Rottweiler. And so there's a lot of different flavors of trend following. At its core, if you just overlay a moving average on something, historically speaking, on one asset class, yes, that likely what it's going to do is reduce risk and volatility. It may increase returns. It may hurt returns. But in general, it improves your sharp ratio, decreases volatility and drawdown. So it's risk reduction. But there's lots of ways you can do trend following or the way that certain managed future shops do it. A more concentrated approach where, say, for example, 
you're using a dual momentum approach, what a lot of people talk about now, where you sort on momentum and concentrate in what's going up the most and then overlay the trend following. And that is actually much more of an outperformance style strategy historically. So there's a lot of different ways you could do it. The base case, when I say it's not return enhancing, I mean, at its core, overlaying a moving average on, say, one asset class is not return enhancing. So if you put together a portfolio, and we did this in our white paper, Trinity Portfolio, near the appendix. And if you read the first version, uh, you probably want to update and read the second version, the 2.0, because it, I think, left out some of these charts and tables that we put in there after a lot of people requested them, is that if you have a spectrum of portfolios, and on the left side, it's the most in buy and hold, and on the right side, it's the most in trend following, you know, and, 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 and another way to think about it that we do in practice is on the left side is the most in bonds and the right is the least in bonds and the most in trend following. Same sort of thing. Philosophically speaking, yes, in general, trend following has had a lower drawdown than buy and hold. However, bonds have also historically had a lower drawdown than equities. And so there's sort of two main levers. And when you combine them, I think you still end up on the correct spectrum. It's how much do you have in low vol fixed income or bonds? And how much do you have in traditional buy and hold assets versus trend following assets? And so as you move to the right on that spectrum, you start to look a lot different. You know, it's not necessarily that it's going to be more risky, though it is more volatile. The spectrum goes from low volatility to high volatility as measured by standard deviation. The drawdown... But, but, if, but if you're using trend following to try to reduce some of that to get you out of markets that are rapidly changing directions, assuming you're not being whipsawed around, wouldn't you sort of step out of the way of some of that volatility? Theoretically, yes. But you got to remember that's coming at the expense of bonds. So bonds are lower vol than the asset class exposure that the trend following funds are targeting. So, you know, five-year T-bills, low, uh, you know, 10-year even bonds, probably lower vol than the trend following portfolio in general. It just depends. Now, the problem with this is that people are going to look at the next month, three years, five years, and it's going to completely color their experience. And so whether or not the aggressive portfolios have lower or higher draw. Same thing if you just did a traditional equities and bond split. I mean, you could have a scenario where the 100% equities or 80% equities, 20% bonds has a lower drawdown than 80% bonds and 20% equities. I mean, look, look at last year, probably. I, I don't know. That's I'm just speaking off the top of my head. Bonds got whacked over a certain period when they bottomed, interest rates bottomed, I think maybe in the summer and started running up and then equities did just fine. So if you had a portfolio that was heavier in bonds, which you expected to be lower vol, lower drawdown. That's not what happened. Over the long term, it'll be interesting to see. But it, it, it's it's a good question. I, I I don't like to say that, by the way. I don't like to say that's a good question. <laughs> well done, listener. I was told by our PR people in the early days, they say, when someone asks you a question, don't immediately say, that's a good question, because you're buying time. And then it also implies that all the other questions are terrible. But now I've gotten in the mindset to never say good question. So good question. Well, on a side note, you mentioned applying you know, the strategy to basically equities and the fact that bonds are they would dampen the portfolio a bit or dampen the volatility. Have you ever thought about using trend following on bonds? There's a couple of things in there. One is that so not to get too complicated because on these podcasts it's a little hard to to talk about without numbers. You want to go a step farther and talk about 
those the spectrum of returns for portfolios with equities and bonds, it gets even more complicated when you start talking about real returns. Because bonds, you know, for example, bond tenured U.S. bonds, you say on a nominal basis, maybe only have a twenty percent drawdown, and stocks is eighty plus. On a real basis, bonds have declined fifty percent because of inflation. They look much more risky when you think in terms of real, and then once you think in portfolio terms of real, it evens it out even more. So it's an even more complicated question than I think the the reader even um, intended. Uh, trend following on bonds, look, ev- everyone does it. Fixed income, different markets, all the trend following funds do it. It's historically, if you're just trend following in an account, not using futures, not using leverage on like 10-year bonds and less, I don't think it matters at all. I think it's probably a waste of time. It may matter in the short term. You may miss you know, a, a rising rate environment, but they're just not volatile enough. Now, if you're leveraging them, if you're doing them as part of the leverage portfolio, that's different. But say junk bonds, emerging market debt, corporate bonds, it uh, works great. Trend falling has, but but those are also more more volatile. Be curious to see in you know a decade or two if we look back at now as an inflection point where if you were using it, you would get out of the way of a significant rising rate environment for a while. Well, that's that's what everyone's been expecting for about ten years. But you also got to think about the flip side. What if interest rates continue declining? What if we see Japan? What if we see negative rates in the U.S.? You know, I mean that that's what no one really expects. But I I don't see why that's not at least a possibility. Well, speaking of inflation, that segues into another question, which was good. You hear some folks, for instance, Shadow Stats or Zero Hedge, talk about how the inflation numbers are manipulated and how the calculations have changed. Is there any merit to this? All, all of our conspiracy theory listeners' ears just perked up. Look, have the calculations changed over time? The same as GDP, the same as valuation metrics, almost anything? Yes. And, and I think at some point... You have to take a honest assessment. Has it done enough to make a difference? And one of my favorite examples of this was a project, I think it was at MIT, where it was called Price Stats, maybe, or the Price Discovery Project or something. I'm murdering this. I apologize. We'll put it in the show notes, where it was a group that was started to measure inflation just by comparing, oh, the Billion Price Project, I think is what it called. And they would just look at prices on the internet for various goods and then compute a CPI basket. And lo and behold, guess what? Pegged CPI almost exactly in the US. And so a lot of the people that, you know, are freaking out about the the government and all the manipulation it's trying to do for whatever reason, you know, it turned out that it's actually a pretty fairly accurate measure. And then someone bought them, and I think it's Sockgen or Credit Suisse. One of the banks now has it, but I think it's called price stats and it's a pretty cool indicator. And it's also likely a leading indicator because I think it comes out more than CPI and you can see in real time uh, when, when it's moving up or moving down, but we'll add it to the show notes. I can't remember the exact name of it. So I don't sweat it, but you know, I, I also don't spend a ton of time. It's not, it's not something I would spend a ton of time with. I remember years ago in my past life, we were writing an article on this and uh, there was a Forbes article back in, I think 2014, maybe, said that the government has changed how they calculate inflation more than 20 times in the past 30 years. Now, that's not to say it's been consequential every single time. could be just tweaks, but you know, they're definitely manipulating it. Well, they, they kicked out horseback riding as a means of transportation and everything else. I mean, it, of course it's going to change. I just I don't know that it's 
like some conspiracy theory that it's underreported by 5% a year. Well, it's interesting other people's takes on it. I think uh, one of your past guests, Porter, uh, I might butcher this, but I think he has his own somewhat proprietary or sort of rule of thumb heuristic. Uh, he just looks at like the Ford F-150, the cost of it, and uses that sort of as a proxy for uh, you know, various inflation measures. Yeah. I mean, either way it feels, you know, and, and it's also, it's highly dependent on what your lifestyle is and what you're spending on, you know, whether it's healthcare, education, if you're buying a computer and TV, it's come, it's been, ma- tech, tech has a massive deflationary impact in general. And, you know, there's other areas, college education, et cetera, that, that's had high inflation. So there is no one just inflation basket. So a wealthy person has a totally different inflation rate than someone who makes 20 grand a year. So, you know, you can look at the broad-based economic inflation, but, it, you know, it's, it's also very hugely individual, you know, exposed, depending on, on what you spend money on. Yeah, there's a heavy skew with that technology. There's some story and an anecdote about somebody complaining about the, uh, the fact that inflation wasn't capturing the rise in cost of living, and some expert had said, well, you know, look at your new iPad. You have twice the computing power that you did uh, you know, 10 years ago or two years ago, even. And the guy said, well, I can't eat my iPad. All right. Next question. Um, what is your opinion on market neutral strategies? If you had to build a market neutral ETF, what strategy would you use? Ed Thorpe, essentially in the last episode, if you haven't listened to it, it's great. You know, built his entire career around market neutral strategies. But so backup just for anybody who's not really fully aware, just give a quick definition. No, I'm not. I'm not. Oh, I thought you said give an overview of Ed. I said too bad. You're gonna have to go listen to the podcast. <laughs> I mean, market neutral is essentially uh, the goal is to have no overall exposure or beta to the market. So if you're a hedge fund that had a 100% long book and a 100% short book, the goal being way back all the way to Alfred Winslow, Winslow Jones in the 30s or whenever he did his first hedge fund. Is it Alfred Winslow Jones? Man, I, my, I'm mispronouncing words right and left today. Um, you know, he started the world's truly first hedged fund because the goal was to have a long position and a short position that cancel out the overall effects of the market. And if you're a good stock picker, you should make money no matter which way the market goes. Theoretically, it's a great idea, right? The challenge, of course, is that it's it's not that easy. And it's gotten harder over the years to, to be able to pick both longs and shorts. But, but it doesn't mean that there's not ways it couldn't be done. I mean, we've written posts on this in the past. We, w- we wrote one, gosh, called something along the lines of, you know, a market-neutral system... And how to fix it or something. And, and the problem with most, most market neutral systems is that they have no market beta exposure and the market goes up 5-10% a year, right? So there's a natural headwind. So you want in general, I think, a intelligent exposure to that, that, that tailwind. And so here's an example. So I think the test we ran was a very common factor, something like buying high momentum stocks and shorting low momentum stocks. Very common, well-known factor. You can get data on this back to the twenties. Same thing with value on the, on the French Fama database. It's free. You can download the monthly returns. And I think I did something like this. I said, all right, if the market's at an all-time high, you're totally market neutral. And for every 10%, the market goes down, you reduce the short book. So the theory being is that when the market's down 50%, you don't want to still be 100% short. You want to be reducing your short. And the market's down 80%, you really, really don't want to have 
huge short exposure because usually market bottoms, the shorts, the really junky stuff, the stuff that's down to a dollar, you know, is going to rip and it's going to double and triple and that you have a lot of pain on the short side. So we uh, ran that test and it worked out great. So, I mean, that, that's an example of a dynamic sort of market neutral. The problem you run into then, of course, is you lose a little bit of the comfort of it being market neutral. So, you know, let's say you start reducing all your shorts when you're down 40, 50%, and all of a sudden the market goes down 50% again, like in Greece or Russia or Brazil or something. So, you know, I, I don't think there's any magical solution. There's a lot of different flavors to it. I don't have any problem with it. I don't think we allocate to any market neutral systems, but I would, am I agnostic? I would totally be happy to. Well, how would you balance a market neutral strategy in a broader portfolio where you might want to also have specific factor based strategies? I mean, is it just up to the engineer to say, well, all right, let's say 20% is just going to be market neutral, 80% we're going to go to XYZ? Well, the, the market neutral could be factor based. So you could do a market neutral fund that buys value stocks and shorts expensive ones. That's a factor based market neutral. You could also buy a portfolio that's just long value stocks. And that's 100% exposed long. So you could design it in any way you want. And there's a lot, you know, a lot of family offices prefer long, short equity and market neutral because it's a little lower volatility. You know, the challenge, like anything, is is finding ones that outperform. Is can you find a long, short equity manager or strategy or a market neutral that can outperform? Otherwise, why not just be buy, buy bonds and be done with it? Yeah. Well, just sort of pushing for any super conservative investors out there, you know, retail investors, what's sort of a good conservative market neutral approach they could apply to you know, try not to suffer any significant drawdowns and still stay somewhat long? Buy some CDs. <laughs> I'm serious. I, I don't think most people should be going and buying expensive uh, and, and most would be expensive. Look, I'm sure there's, there's a lot of alts funds out there and I spend almost zero time researching them. So it's not like I can say, hey, you need to buy this fund from research affiliates or AQR or LSV or like one of these shops. You know, I, I just, I don't, I'm not that familiar. I'm sure there's some good ones out there. And then, but market neutral can also mean something, you know, much more nefarious. It could be something like long-term capital that leverages up 50 or 100 to one and theoretically is market neutral. But because of the leverage, all of a sudden becomes a very aggressive Fun. So it's it's not just saying market neutral doesn't mean aggressive or conservative. It just means people are trying to line up positions on each side. And the, and the best way to so like talking about Thorpe's, that's the dream market neutral portfolio that it goes on for 20 years. It has three down months out of whatever it was, 230. And those down months were all less than 1%. Like that's the market neutral portfolio you want. The problem is because of Ed Thorpe and everyone like him, there's 10,000 quants with PhDs from MIT that all want to make hundreds of millions as well. So they all now have the same database. And we talked about this a little bit on, I think, the podcast where he said, you type in a traditional multi-factor stock that's attractive from a multi-factor model that's cheap and high quality and good momentum and it's got all the good factors and every single quant shop owns it. So the, the edge there is gone and it's harder. And so you need to start thinking about either more esoteric asset classes and factors or to try to be we have a friend that says the alpha in this world of hyperactive trading and all the edges having been worn away by, you know, these PhDs and quant shops is to actually get 
more dumb, meaning move out to a time frame that you can still take advantage of the large behavioral biases of large bear markets and people acting foolishly in crowds at extremes. Problem is that that just plays out on a much longer time horizon. Okay. So if you can find a good R, email us in. We'll we'll, we'll add it to the to the podcast. You mentioned uh, research affiliates in your response there, so I'm honing in on keywords. That leads us to another question. A listener is listening to our past podcasts, uh, and the one with Rob are not from research affiliates. Uh, Rob had said something which the listener found interesting, which you, Mev, didn't challenge. Uh, the listener wants your thoughts on it. Rob's quote was, managed futures are not an investment in any asset class. People think of it as a commodities investment. It's not. It's zero. It's long some commodities, short other commodities. For most managed future strategies, what it really is is a momentum strategy that chases what's newly beloved and has performed well and a bet on manager skill. And if you've got a great managed futures manager, it's going to be marvelous. If you've got an average managed futures manager, it's going to go nowhere for you. It's not an asset class. It's a bet on whether the manager or the algorithm has merit. I'm going to channel Charlie Munger, who I'm going to see tomorrow at the at the meeting he's a chairman at, the newspaper he owns. I forget what it's called. Anyway, I'm going to channel him and just say I agree, I actually agree with him. Done and done? No. Well, yeah, I, I, I can't. I, I always want to add more. I mean, look, I agree with you. It's not an asset class. It's There's really only four asset classes, stocks, bonds, commodities, and currencies. And almost everything else is an amalgamation of those or an active strategy using those four. So you could you could argue that real estate is an asset class, but really it's a mix of equity and debt. Same thing with corporate bonds. Managed futures is simply trading positions long and short on, you know, they, they many try to do 50 to 100 global asset classes and industries and sectors. You know, does does that approach which, and again, managed futures means many things, but 80% of managed futures is probably trend following. So does trend following have an inherent return structure? And I think it does. But yes, it, it will be dependent on the system and algorithm or manager you pick and how much you pay for it. Now, my belief is that most of them do the same thing you know, could you pick one that does terrible and one that does amazing? And if you look at the dispersion in 2016, for example, managed futures didn't have a very good year. I think the average return was probably somewhere around zero, if not negative. But there was funds that put up plus 10, 20%, minus 10, 20% on each side. So very clearly, they're trading different markets, have different algorithms. But in general, if you pull up charts of the mutual funds or hedge funds that do it, they have on average, a fairly similar equity curve over time, particularly if you compare it to a traditional asset class like stocks or bonds. Wait, was that dispersion based upon, you're saying different asset classes, or was that purely based upon yeah, different so, sk manager skill level? Because well, it's a little frightening to well, think that you could have a you, range of... Your, your manager's skill for most of these guys is an algorithm. It's not, you know, Paul Tudor Jones showing up tomorrow and saying, you know what, we need to short gold. In his case, it might be, but for... For the managed future shops, it's traditionally not. It's an algorithm. So Focus. for Harding and Winton and and you know Dunn and these guys, they have systems. And so it's one of them may target 20 markets with 50% in interest rates and fixed income. Another may target 100 market global markets with only 10% 
to fixed income. So it's the same as, as if you said, hey, look, there's 100 equity managers that are very concentrated and active, and one was up 20 last year and one was down 20. You could come up with a quant system that would, would be in either of those scenarios, but the vast majority of them tend to move together. Sounds like buyer beware. Well, it's the same with anything. I mean, you you buy a you buy a quant stock fund. So let's let's say you have a quant stock fund that pit, picks ten stocks out of the S and P five hundred. One 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 is dogs of the Dow buys the ten highest dividend stocks. Another is what we called cash cows of the Dow shareholder yield. Right. Another one is does the stock begin with the letter A? But to what extent are the managed futures algorithms as um, transparent as buying dogs of the Dow? I mean, can you get a hundred percent? awareness of what they're what they're doing strategy wise or are you kind I mean, of some guessing of like 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 some of the some of the funds are index based and pretty darn transparent about it so like etfs you can look up their holdings every day mutual funds you can look them up you know once a quarter and so they're like if you go into aqrs or any of these sites that have managed futures fact sheets they'll say look here's our asset allocation we're going to target 25 percent risk in each of these four buckets here's the contracts we're going to trade here's what we're going to do you know and, and and will they say look here's our exact system probably not but most of them you know are, are fairly transparent about their process now some aren't and then the ones that there's also plenty of managed futures and trend following shops that also have a subjective element so they're not all pure algorithmic either well that's what sort of freaks me out just a little bit is i mean per ed thorpe if you asked them the question how do you know when your factor has lost efficacy and it's time to bail versus when will reversion to the mean kick in. And if you're dealing with a managed future strategy that's largely black box in nature and you can't really tell the definition of what they're doing, then how do you know whether downtimes are reflective of what's within the normal rate of uh, possibility for a loss versus when is something materially changed? Well, you can look at history and you can come up with simulations. But, I mean, again, I mean, equity has lost over 80%. So... You know, U.S. stocks in the 1930s, would you then claim that equities are a broken asset class that you should never allocate to? Yeah, I'd be out since the 30s. Yeah, you definitely <laughs> would. You you would have been knocked out in 29 by selling options and yep, yep. on... Well, then long who calls. Knows what? Who knows what? All right. Uh, next question is a bit long, so I'm going to condense it a little bit. It has to do with your stocking investment from this past Christmas. You know what it is? My stocking? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uranium. The quick takeaway from the listener question is that he's unclear whether or not the rules of uh, an asset class being down for several years in a row and then the ensuing potential for a reversion to the mean to have it be a ripper, whether that applies to uranium because it's uh, very small as a, uh, a sector. So, Meb, do the same rules apply here when you're dealing with something that's uh, – a sector as small as uranium? Well, first of all, uranium is not a sector. Uranium is an industry. So the, the way that most shops do the classification is that there's about 10 sectors. You know, it's healthcare, tech, utilities, stuff like that. They just added real estate uh, as, a, as a sector. But there's about 10 of those, and those are much more broad and, and have a lot more depth. And then industries are much more concentrated. So maybe something like biotech stocks or medical device equipment makers or uranium stocks. And so there's, depending on the classification scheme, I don't know, 50 of those. 
And so it's the same thing as if you said with almost any market, there's increasing levels of granularity. And so this, this piece that the listener is referring to, which is about asset classes, and we've done a lot of posts here on both asset classes, industries, countries, sectors, what happens when they go down a lot, so 60 to 90%, and also what happens when they go down many years in a row, so when they go down one, two, three, four, five, six years in a row, and the example, I mean, this we published this in our first book back in 06, 07, whenever it came out, 07, 08, Ivy Portfolio, and there's a chart in there, that it, and it talks about this, it says, look, at the asset class level, when things go down a few years in a row, it's usually a good time to buy, and at a sector or industry level, because they're smaller, more concentrated, and thus more volatile, you need to stretch that out a bit. And so instead of it maybe going down two or three years in a row, you, you want it to go down three, four, or five years in a row. It's the same thing of comparing maybe a, a U.S. government bond to equities. And we talked about like really bad months. So the, and I'm going to murder these statistics, but let's say it was like the worst 1% of bad months in stocks was like a 10% down month. And so usually when you bought after a 10% down month and held it for three months, you got a little bit of outperformance. And then, the, but, the, but the bond trigger was like 5%. So you had to adjust, you know, so you, you can't consider cash or bond-like instruments the same as you would stock. So same thing with being sectors and industries. And the whole uranium and coal stuff is meant to be a fun kind of diversion. I'm not going and loading 100% of my portfolio in uranium stocks at Christmas, now, now that we've, however, now that we've seen us write this post tw- two years in a row, I guarantee you what's going to happen. We're going to go all these crazy shadow stat hedge fund or uh, zero hedge followers. They're going to wait till December and find out what our next pick is for the coal and the stockings and then go big and then, you know, be down 80%. Any uh, idea? For because the there's nothing. Head. I mean, look, in my mind, there is nothing preventing something down six years in a row to go down seven or eight or nine. You know, like I, I get that. It's just in general, it's like a rubber band when things go down that much and it's universally hated and it's disgusting and no one wants it. You really only need some something to go right or almost to go less wrong. And in this case, I don't know, it, it was a handful of things, but, you know, it it usually, I think, pays to at least start sniffing around things when they're down 80% and down six years in a row. That's, you know, it's like your buddy Steve Sugaru talking about how he loves investments that are hated and in a slight uptrend. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of these types of investments, you did coal a couple of years ago. Any by idea? By the way, um, someone, and I actually didn't notice this, someone had sent me a chart and said, by the way, Meb, emerging market local debt on a five year basis is still, I think, has negative returns, even though it ripped last year. I'll have to look into it. Anyway, keep going. Um, any idea where coal is? We after I don't. We'd have to. We you know what we need we need a assistant in during the podcast live shows to be Look putting up stats. Up, huh? <laughs> Just looking up stats for us. No, to be putting up charts. You know, like on <laughs> on TV where like we, we need we need this to turn into a little more than two guys in a broom closet with tequila. I think we need a we need a TV and an assistant that put up charts and and be able to let's start recording this on video. You heard it here. So Send I don't, I don't resumes. know. I don't know what Cole's doing. I have no idea. <laughs> All right, let's see here. What about? I, I don't. You know, I don't have any ideas because Bloomberg 
did a redesign of their iPhone app, and it is atrocious. Did you ever use it? Uh, the yeah, old one was great. Did you download the new one? It's unusable. So I don't even actually have a good quotes app. Uh, so listeners, if you know a really good quotes app, email us. I, I need something something to, to use. Another trend following question here. Uh, have you given any thought to the application of trend following across time? For example, a lifetime to capture the higher gains of buy and hold uh, when you're young, provided you've got the uh, fortitude for drawdowns, and then moving to trend following when older to avoid the drawdowns and volatility. So there's a lot in that question, some of which that's I, I don't know that I agree with, but some of which, I, if I did distill his question, it meant, Mev, do you think that it makes, do you, makes sense to use trend following more when you're older because I think that it has more of a chance to protect you when when you're older and avoid drawdowns does that make more sense that sounds right yep you know i mean look i don't know that i mean i don't know that young people who are learning to invest are going to be like any more rational or the lessons they learn and when you say do buy and hold as a young person and lose a ton of money i mean look at japan where they went through this 20-year bear market there's probably an entire generation of young people who are like, I'm never going to buy and hold moronic. Why would I ever do that? You know, and, and, and so I, and on the flip side, you know, one of the false sense of securities that an older investor may have is they, they may think that trend following is guaranteed to protect them and it's not. You know, trend following in general helps protect against long bear markets, but there's no guarantee. And you could have, a market that we're in right now where almost everything is going up and bomb goes off, whatever, who knows? And the markets all go down 40% tomorrow. That's trend volume is not going to protect you. You know, most of it's, it's not, doesn't have time to react. So, you know, for most people, when I, when you're talking about this kind of, if you want security, if you want to not worry, Sell down to your sleeping point and just hold more in cash and short-term investments. Fair enough. Take If you want to avoid the risk, then then don't take it in the first place. But it kind of reminds me of, uh, I think, something you'd said or in one of the podcasts where the portfolio that you need to grow wealthy is not the same portfolio you need to maintain your wealth. So you know, I guess it's up to the investor over time to figure out where he sits on that spectrum and make the necessary tweaks. I was just reading a great story about, see if I can find it on Twitter, where we talked, have talked a, num- a number of times on the podcast about Batista, the, the Brazilian guy who was once top five wealthiest men in the world. And then due to concentration and all of the things that got him to be in the, he was over 30 billion to be that rich. He continued to do the same things and then eventually lost it all. And there's there's a Bloomberg article about Ike Batista. I'm just going to read it real quick. Uh, the the quote said, according to allegations in the proceedings, is that Batista, acting on the advice from a spiritual advisor named something I can't pronounce, tossed about $130,000 worth of gold coins into the Atlantic last year from the deck of a yacht festooned with flowers and perfumes for the occasion. Quote, all those riches that everyone talked about, his guru said in a phone interview, from Rio, I don't think that brought him good fluids. So uh, the guru explained, he advised Batista to make amends with the sea goddess Imenaha by giving gold back to nature after his years of mineral extraction. 
how much are you going to throw away this year in the? Ocean? I'll think about it. I, I, I'm more I'm more interested in throwing away money into my my 1960s Land Cruiser. That seems to be a perfectly useful bottomless pit. I drove past your place the other day and saw the for sale sign. Yeah, any buyers? There. Yeah. By the way, podcast listeners, you want a 1967 Land Cruiser that runs on occasion? Let me know. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question here. After reading an article this week from your buddy Josh Brown. Uh, he indicates that a significant portion of valuations, specifically CAPE, are the confidence and the stability of the stock market, which will justify relative high valuations, for instance, here in the U.S., Japan, and Switzerland, while discounting the emerging markets. This does make intuitive sense, but I wanted to see your thoughts on it. I, I disagree consistently with uh, my friends there on this topic. And by the way, Josh and Barry and crew are hosting their evidence-based investing conference West at some point this summer, I think down in Newport, I'll be down at it. So if you want to come hang out and drink beers in Newport this summer or spring, I, you have to look it up. I don't know when it is, but we'll be there. I consistently disagree with them on, on Cape in general, T- looking at foreign markets, because m- my comment there is that you get so caught up in the short term and look, the U.S. is in a big, fat, awesome bull market right now. And the Dow, it's arguably the second longest ever. S&P, it's one of the longest ever. I mean, we're approaching, you know, eight years uh, bull market. And there's only been a handful that have hit, I think, 10 years and pretty nice returns. And so it's easy to take a setback and say, man, times are good and just throw valuation out the window. Because it can go on for a long time. There's nothing that says the market couldn't get more expensive for five more years and just put all the bears out of business and the market just keeps chugging along. That is fully within the realm of possibility. And it's done that before. I mean, the 90s, it got to a valuation, a cape ratio of 45. It's only like 27 now. There's a long way to go. Reminds me of the article we wrote comparing it to uh, 21, where you can keep hitting on a 19 potentially or you know mm-hmm. 18 17 you know get your 21 but statistically so people are you most people, likely to win people draw so much so many conclusions from short amount of time frame and data and the way they feel now you know and then when times are bad to do this exact same thing with the opposite conclusion and so when you look at a lot of these countries which by the way have been ripping for the last year and they have low cape ratios and and the year prior to that and the world looked like it was going to end and Brazil was going to fall into the ocean and everything else go through a great depression. You know, that's the way that it always feels and looks and you feel like things are never going to get better. And lo and behold, these markets go up 50, hundred percent, 200 percent, triple quadruple, whatever it may be. It's recency bias. Yeah. It's a recency bias. And so, I mean, look, you know, we, we, there's a post we did, I think four years ago that just said, keeping it simple. And we have a fund that does this. And we say, look, let's have your long only stock exposure. You want the tailwind of stock. So we'll have that stock exposure with a factor tilt. And then we're going to put the market in four different boxes. It's based on valuation and trend. So is the market an uptrend or downtrend? Is the market cheap or expensive? Couldn't be more simple, right? And historically, that has worked out great. And it's the exact way you think it would, where if you're in an uptrend, which happens uptrend and the market is cheap. That happens a third of the time. And that's the best performing quadrant. Historically, that's done 14% per year. 
if but the next best quadrant is an uptrend in an expensive market, which is where we are now. That happens 30% of the time. So right there, an uptrend, which we know in most markets around the world, occurs around two-thirds, 70% of the time. Most time, market spend going up. So about half the time, it's cheap, and half the time, it's expensive. Well, that makes sense, obviously, because that's the definition of it. But the second best place to be in is an uptrend expensive. The problem comes is when that uptrend becomes a downtrend. So that uptrend expensive is still 12% of your uptrend when it flips to downtrend and expensive, it's minus 6% a year. So it's a terrible time to be investing. And so, you know, you need to be a little more careful. So in, in cheap and in a downtrend is still positive. It's over 6% a year. You know, you can, you can be a little more cavalier when markets are cheap because it doesn't matter as much uptrend or downtrend. But when markets are expensive and roll over, that's when you really want to start to batten down the hatches. But it doesn't have any, to be 2017, it could be 2019. Have there ever been any studies about sort of the velocity of the drawdown um, based upon you know this quote-unquote expensive market versus a uh, cheap market? You know, is it a much faster, more violent drawdown at the very top, or is there any sort of uh, rhyme or reason? Yeah, we wrote one. Uh, we wrote two. Uh, but one, some, one was called Where the Black Swans Hide, and it looked at returns in a bunch of different markets when in an uptrend and in a downtrend. And in a downtrend, the volatility is much higher and draw, you know, returns are much lower. And it, there's a lot of behavioral reasons we think that works. But in general, you want to avoid those periods if you can. Thus, that's why trend following works is you avoid the higher volatility. So you move to a, a low vol instrument like cash or bonds and, and you end up avoiding that. And so along the same line of thinking is that if you look at valuation, you know, a lot of people have done this. Montier has done some charts. So has Star Capital. We've done some. And you look at uh, valuation and then future drawdowns. We just posted a chart from Hussman on this uh, a couple weeks ago, where the more you pay initially for valuation, the higher your future chances of a big fat drawdown. And it makes sense. And the less you pay, the lower it is. Well, yeah, no, I, I got that. I was just curious about, say, for instance, from a Cape range from call it 30 down to 20, if the velocity of drawdowns during that time were somehow could be measured as more violent or happening or falling farther quicker rather than, say, a Cape then from 18 down to 10, you might have the same uh, size of the drawdown, but it would take two or three times as long. Yeah. Well, as far as time, you know, we looked at magnitude of bubbles in, I think, our global value book and kind of demonstrated that the size of the valuation over valuation bubble correlated nicely to how long it took to wear off. So Japan, biggest bubble we've ever seen, took 20 years to, to wear off. The U.S. for the 2000 bubble only took eight. You know, it got it got really cheap in, in March of 2009. A lot of people don't remember that or don't want to admit that because no one was buying. But it, on a K basis, it was signaling very cheap. I think it was low teens. You know where we are now. Again, it's not horrific, but it's not it's not good. Yeah. Well, speaking of Cape, another uh, another question here. So, wondering if you guys have done research on earnings growth rates compared with Cape to get a more accurate indicator of expected returns. For example, while uh, Cape for many countries in Europe is low, their growth rates are also considerably lower than the U.S., which could justify the lower cape as compared with the U.S. Any thoughts? 
Yeah, so earnings growth is certainly a component of total returns. We've written some articles on the, what we call the Bogle formula, which is distilling future stock returns into the various components of dividends and earning or, uh, and, and by the way, AQR, we just sent this to the idea farm. AQR has a good paper on capital market assumptions that looks at this, but distilling it down into dividends, earning growth, and of course, valuation change. The problem is that listener that emailed that in, it's, it's backward looking. So earnings growth, yes, it's obvious that it was lower looking back, but do you expect that to continue going forward? You're making a very active bet. And historically, and ironically, if you look at a lot of these factors that work for broad stock markets, you want to invest where the numbers are worse. So you want to invest in the place with the worst trailing five-year GDP. You want to be investing where the worst currency returns were the last five years. You want to be investing where... So all these things that you would you would think would help. So you could, yeah, if you could just magically forecast that somewhere is going to grow earnings 10% a year for the next 10 years, let me know. Wonderful. Awesome. We'll plug it into the equation. You're going to have great returns. But the problem is, I think the, the ability to forecast earnings growth is a pretty pretty tall order. Yeah, well, that means you're always battling the question of, uh, you know, is this time different? The behavioral bias, you know, everybody wonders about, and we talk about sort of investing in certain countries. No one wants to go where, uh, you know, no one wants to go to Greece. No one wants to go to Brazil. I want to go to Greece. I really want to go to Greece. It sounds amazing. I've never been to Brazil. And the only place I've been in Greece doesn't count because it was my brother when I was in high school. And it was one of those islands on like the west coast it was like corfu or something so totally i mean it's like a spring break destination all right let's uh i think we're sitting around 45 minutes let's do one more and wrap it up so we don't go too long today i am 22 an hour jeff why you always want to cut it short doing it for you you're running out of steam you're you're losing your edge here Um, i'm 22 with a moderate to high risk tolerance and i'm looking to increase uh, the risk return profile of a global asset allocation portfolio. I realize this will likely reduce the Sharpe ratio, but do you know if adding global equities at the expense of global bonds would completely destroy the risk return profile of a globally diversified uh, portfolio? It's sort of interesting that he says, I want to increase the risk adjusted returns, and I know this is going to reduce them. So should I do this? It's like, it's like, I wonder if he like already knows the answer to the question. I mean, there's, there's a couple of schools of thought here. One is that if you truly have a really long-term time horizon and you don't care about drawdowns, you know, the volatility numbers, et cetera, compress over longer time horizons. So if you look at equities in the best and worst case scenario and the volatility on rolling 20-year periods, Totally different than one-year periods. And you, you start to see the ability for equities to become more bond-like the longer your time horizon is. The problem is the order of events. And so most young people or people in general don't think in terms of 20 years. I mean, how many people do you know clo- put their money in a bank account, close their eyes, and say, you know what? Let me see what this is worth in 20 years. Yeah. Right. It goes down 30%. And they say, oh my God, I got to sell this because I got to buy a car next year. Or I just had three kids, my third kid, and how in the world I have half the money I used to have in my bank account. But oh, we got a 20 year time horizon. You know, most people 
it's a it's a great theoretical exercise. And so maybe this is a business idea. Maybe we come up with a investment company that locks away your money and says, you know what, tough. You can't access this for 10 years. Not only can you not access it, we're not going to tell you what the balance is. Only in extreme circumstances. Is, or maybe we're not going to charge you a management fee until you withdraw. <laughs> and if you withdraw, it's sort of, it's, you know, it, we, interesting. There's, I mean, there's got to be some behavioral nudges that would work there to where it would help people. It's almost like a lockbox scenario. It says, really, you think you really have a 20 year time horizon? Fine. Give us your money and we'll lock it up for 20 <laughs> years and you can have it in 20 years. That would fund your grease trip. No, but it's, I think the way you, you'd have to be a little more creative about management fees too, because you could say you're like penalizing bad behavior. So many of these brokerages and money management shops, you know, they tout doing the right thing, but all of the incentives are built in the wrong way. You know, the ability to see your account value every day, the ability to trade lightning fast, the ability to use margin, all these crazy things. I wonder if you couldn't come up with a better model for investor success than what's currently out there anyway think of some ideas readers email me listeners god i i can't i can't stop see that's why we're stopping right now at 45 minutes no more is that it hey, let's call it today why don't you take us out okay and, and by the way i didn't even answer the question at all the question was you know as far as a global portfolio one is you're making an active bet against bonds by the way and you know if you look at the global portfolio it's roughly 55, 45 stocks, bonds, but you know, a good chunk of that. And I think it's a third of the world market portfolio is corporate bonds. And so corporate bonds are about half stocks and bonds. So, you know, putting more in equities, I'm totally cool with. And I think a great way to do it would be a global value approach, you know, using Cape ratio or any valuation approach that'll get you away from putting half in the world's largest market cap. But Anyway, uh, long-term time horizon, yeah. But go buy go buy some of our global value fund and then put it away for twenty years. I think that's I think that's a great idea. All right, uh, we got some great guests coming up. You guys keep sending the questions in. We may start doing these more often, or maybe on Mondays. Uh, we'll see what the, what it, what feels right for the Q and A episodes. But thanks for taking the time to listen. Uh, for the mailbag, send all the questions and tequila to Jeff at feedback <laughs> at show dot com. As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.